0: Fall was giving way to winter. A harsh chill nipped at Hans Peter Krauss as he and his bagman made their way across the southern campus of Yale University.
1: He was livid. What he was planning to do, it filled him with a shame so dense that he honestly wondered if he'd ever feel like himself again.
0: Krauss glanced at the bagman for the hundredth time, making sure he was still there the precious box still in his hand. He couldn't bear to think of the possibility of losing the artifact in transit.
1: When Krauss exited the Yale Library later that day, he was no longer the owner of the legendary, confounding Voynich Manuscript. Years of trying to fetch a worthy price for the ancient tome had produced no results. Finally... To save himself further embarrassment, he'd agreed to just donate the damn thing.
0: Over half a century since its unveiling, the Voynich manuscript was still a historical and literary puzzle. Historians, scholars, linguists, and codebreakers still didn't know who'd written it, where it had come from, or what the draconian text on its stained yellow pages even said. Krauss had learned the hard way that no one was particularly interested in shelling out six figures for an unsolvable mystery.
1: Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly.
0: And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth.
1: You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar.
0: At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five star review wherever you are listening. It really does help.
1: This is our first episode on the Voynich Manuscript, a centuries-old tome written in a strange, unknown language that has stumped historians
0: and codebreakers alike for over a century. This week, we'll discuss the few facts that are actually known about the manuscript and the lives of some of the key people in its saga.
1: Next week, we'll talk about the primary theories about where the manuscript came from, who wrote it, and what it actually says.
0: Secret codes have been a vital part of espionage for centuries. From the time of the earliest recorded writings, there have always been those who manipulate language to craft secret messages that can only be understood with the correct cipher.
1: But consider this. It's estimated that every 14 days, a language dies, Over half of the 6,000 languages spoken today will likely be
0: extinct by the year 2100. What if someone found an old code, one written in a language that had long since died out? No one would be able to read it. This is one possible explanation for the mysterious Voynich Manuscript.
1: The Voynich Manuscript is written in a language that no one has ever been able to identify. Initially discovered by book dealer Wilfred Voynich in 1912, the tome is considered incomplete. Some pages are missing, and without a cipher to decode its mysterious language, there's no way to determine how much is gone.
0: What remains are around 240 pages of vellum, a membrane-like animal skin used for centuries as writing paper and painting canvas. Each page is covered in a handwritten text, the words composed of unfamiliar letters.
1: Many of these letters are simple characters comprised of a single pencil stroke, while others are more complex. These more intricate characters look like they could be related to Arabic or perhaps Turkish
0: script. For reference, if you're a fan of The Lord of the Rings, much of the writing in the Voynich manuscript looks similar to J.R.R. Tolkien's
1: Elvish. To this day, no one has been able to determine what any of these letters mean or how they function in relation to one another.
0: In addition, many pages of the Voynich manuscript feature hand-drawn illustrations. These include trees, plants, astrological arrangements, star charts, animals, mythological creatures, and crudely drawn humans, among others.
1: Just as the bizarre writing doesn't seem to match any known modern languages, many of the plants depicted in the Voynich manuscript don't match any known flora on Earth.
0: Complicating matters even further, we still don't know whether the Voynich manuscript is written in code or in some kind of dead, forgotten language or some combination of the two. An encrypted text written in a dead tongue would make for the ultimate code cracking challenge.
1: As such, the manuscript has drawn the attention of both linguists and codebreakers alike in the hundred plus years since its discovery in 1912, and it has defied every attempt to decipher it.
0: There are a few notable things about the Voynich manuscript that have made it impossible to translate thus far. To explain why, we'll have to look at the tools codebreakers use and how the mysterious tome resists their application.
1: For centuries, code-breaking has relied largely on ciphers. That is, the key to the encryption is usually vital to cracking a code.
0: For example, let's say you create a code by assigning each letter in the alphabet a number between 1 and 26. A cipher might be the piece of paper that tells you what number corresponds to what letter. With this paper, you would know that the word car in this code would read out as 3, 1, 18. You would then be able to write out entire messages in the code. Without knowing the key, codebreakers instead have to look for clues in the pattern to reverse engineer the cipher.
1: Sometimes codebreakers can compare a text to other writings that use the same cipher. But the Voynich manuscript appears to be entirely unique. Without another example of the language, this reverse engineering method isn't an option.
0: The words in the Voynich manuscript are aligned on the left margin. That means the text is likely intended to be read from left to right. This would imply that whatever language it is has roots in a Western or European language, as opposed to something like Arabic or Hebrew, which reads right to left. However, this small clue has done little to help codebreakers make progress in deciphering the Voynich manuscript.
1: While the left alignment suggests the text is European, it's incompatible with the specific processes codebreakers use to decipher encrypted European texts.
0: One such method is called matching characters. The most commonly used letter in English writing is the letter E. So if you're trying to decipher a code into English, it's a good bet that whichever character appears the most corresponds to E. With that foundation, codebreakers can begin to translate a text.
1: This method can also be used to identify small common words to, at, be, and so on. By looking at the smaller, repeated words in a text, you can start to deduce which ones are functioning as common articles. But the Voynich manuscript lacks any punctuation, so it's impossible to know where sentences begin or end. And without that, there's no way to determine sentence structure. It's essentially impossible to figure out how letters or words function in relation to one another.
0: As we mentioned, in addition to the strange writing, nearly every page of the manuscript has an illustration. Most of them are labeled, providing another potential matching opportunity.
1: Presumably, you could compare the labels of two different drawings to try and find a link.
0: For example, if you compare two drawings of flowers, you might look for similar labeling words to define common aspects like leaf or stem or petal.
1: But in all of the labels across hundreds of pages, almost none of the words repeat.
0: It's confounding. The Voynich Manuscript offers over 200 pages of writing and illustration for codebreakers to contend with.
1: But nothing in those pages seems to offer much help in terms of revealing how anything in the manuscript is meant to be read.
0: The Voynich Manuscript also lacks many of the usual attributes of a regular language or code. There are no words in the text that are fewer than two characters long, nor longer than 10 characters.
1: The layout of letters doesn't match up with that of normal writing either. Scholars have noted that some characters seem to appear only at the start of words, others only in the middle, and others only at the end.
0: These characters could indicate any number of things tense changes, pluralizations, possessives, but without an entry point into deciphering this language it's impossible to tell.
1: Most of the characters are relatively simple in that they can be written out in a single, uninterrupted pencil stroke, but others are comprised of more than one line.
0: In Japanese or Chinese writing, multiple lines combine to create a word. Whereas every character in the English language is just one letter that has to combine with others to form words, Japanese or Chinese characters function as words by themselves. In the case
1: of the Voynich manuscript, we don't know whether some multi-line characters are still just letters or if they're functioning as complete words.
0: We initially assumed that the Voynich manuscript is rooted in European languages because of the left alignment. But when a statistician ran the text through an algorithm, he came to a new conclusion. The test compared the spread of letters to known languages and determined that the organization of letters and characters was actually closest to Chinese.
1: But even that isn't much of a jumping-off point for further analysis, because it still assumes that the writing in the Voynich manuscript functions like a known language.
0: For over a hundred years now, scientists, linguists, and historians have tried to find out what the Voynich Manuscript actually says.
1: But the content of the text is also only part of the mystery. What about the source of the text? We still don't know who wrote it, or why.
0: Where did the manuscript come from? Who filled its pages with drawings? And why isn't there any apparent historical evidence of the source of this mysterious language? Was the Voynich Manuscript intended to hide some ancient secret? We
1: won't have any definitive answers so long as the hundred-year-old tome continues to defy the most dedicated code-crackers of the 20th century. The history of the Voynich Manuscript in the 20th century is one of heartbreaking failures endless frustration, false leads, and more than one hoax put forth by those who wrongfully claimed they'd cracked the code.
0: Next, we'll discuss Wilfred Voynich, his discovery of the manuscript, and his lifelong mission to decipher it.
1: Now, back to the story.
0: The Voynich Manuscript is a 200-plus page tome filled with hand-drawn pictures of plants, animals, and astrological alignments. It was written in a mysterious language that no one has been able to decipher. The manuscript is centuries old, but its modern history begins around 1912, when it was first discovered by Wilfred Michael Voynich.
1: Wilfred was born Mikol Hobdonk Voynich in what is now the country of Lithuania in 1865.
0: Though he attended school in warsaw st petersburg and moscow with the intention to become a pharmacist wilfred soon discovered a passion for politics and organized dissent. in 1885 20-year-old wilfred joined the first proletariat a revolutionary organization run by ludwig varinsky a ukrainian philosopher and activist
1: the following year Wilfred took part in a failed attempt to break into the Warsaw Citadel, a fortress prison in Poland that housed some fellow revolutionaries. He was arrested and sentenced to hard labor in Siberia, where he suffered for three years.
0: 25-year-old Wilfred escaped in 1890 and relocated to London under a fake name. He was momentarily involved in revolutionary activities with another anti-Tsarist organization, but soon abandoned such pursuits after the death of a friend.
1: Instead, Wilfred embraced London as his new home and worked to establish himself as an antiquarian bookseller. He became a legal British citizen in 1904 at the age of 39 and officially changed his name to Wilfred Michael Voynich.
0: For the rest of his life, Wilfred operated a rare bookstore out of Soho Square and by all accounts, he was quite successful. The nature of the rare book business lies on one's ability not just to procure valuable manuscripts, but also to maintain an active client list of wealthy patrons willing to pay for such artifacts. Wilfred was seemingly adept at both.
1: It was his rare knack for hunting down lost, forgotten, or previously undiscovered books that perhaps led Wilfred to the Villa Mondragone, a 350-year-old estate in Italy. Or perhaps he'd caught a whiff of possibility from one of his other old manuscripts.
0: Whatever the reason, 47-year-old Wilfred traveled to Italy in 1912. It was there that he discovered the tome that would become his ultimate legacy.
1: Located less than an hour away from Rome in western Italy, the Villa Mondragone had been owned by the Vatican since 1620, when it was relinquished by the original owners.
0: The villa had operated as a college since 1865, run by the Jesuits, an order of Catholic priests.
1: However, by the first decade of the 20th century, the villa was experiencing funding issues, which led the Jesuits to consider the loathsome prospect of selling off some of their historical artifacts.
0: Enter Wilfred Voynich, who struck a deal to acquire some of their rare books.
1: The exact details of how Wilfred came to possess the Voynich manuscript aren't known. Wilfred later offered vague details about how and where he found the manuscript.
0: In some of these statements, he would even claim that he found it somewhere other than the Villa Mondragone. But this was likely a ploy to stop rival book dealers from traveling to the Villa to scoop up any rare books Wilfred might have missed.
1: In 1921, in one of his few writings about his discovery of the manuscript, Wilfred merely claimed to find it in a castle in southern Europe.
0: He explained, While examining the manuscripts with a view to the acquisition of at least a part of the collection, my attention was especially drawn by one volume. It was such an ugly duckling compared with the other manuscripts, with their rich decorations in gold and colors, that my interest was aroused at once. I found that it was written entirely in cipher.
1: Wilfred returned to his shop in London with the manuscript. It's unclear if he tried to privately sell it immediately after acquiring it, or if he even showed it to anyone at all. But in 1914, Wilfred opened a second shop in New York.
0: And in October of 1915, he oversaw an exhibition at the Art Institute of Chicago in which he displayed a number of his rare books.
1: It's estimated that Wilfred's collection had cost him over $8 million,
0: over $200 million today. Of all the near priceless tomes that Wilfred showcased in Chicago, the one item that garnered the most press coverage was the Curious Manuscript.
1: A bulletin from the Art Institute reads, Among the most important items is an unsolved cipher manuscript by Roger Bacon, 13th Century, the profuse illustrations give sufficient clues to establish the importance of the cipher
0: content. Now, there are two things of note here. This press release from Wilfrid's exhibit at the Art Institute seems to be the first ever public reference to the Voynich manuscript. And second, this release directly ascribes the authorship of the manuscript to Roger Bacon.
1: Roger Bacon was a 13th century friar and philosopher. He was well-known, among other things, for his writing on universal grammar. He is also one of the main historical figures suspected of being the real author of the Voynich Manuscript.
0: We'll dive into the theory about Roger Bacon's potential connection to the Voynich Manuscript in our next episode. But for now, we can't overstate the significance of this unveiling at the Art Institute of Chicago.
1: We don't know what research Wilfred conducted in private in the three years between finding the manuscript and revealing it to the public, but he likely originated the connection between Bacon and the manuscript, revealing his findings to the press at the 1915 Chicago presentation. Once his claim was published, it became generally accepted that Roger Bacon was the key suspect in the mystery of the manuscript's authorship.
0: After the exhibition was publicized, Roger Bacon became a permanent part of the Voynich manuscript lore, and he will likely stay that way until the manuscript is finally deciphered. Again, we'll explore the truth of that connection next week.
1: After The Chicago Show, Wilfred Voynich spent 18 years trying to crack the cipher in the manuscript. To that end, he enlisted a number of fellow book dealers, linguists, and historians. In
0: 1919, William Romain Newbold, a philosophy teacher, examined the Voynich manuscript at Wilfred's invitation. Newbold concluded that the text had been written by Roger Bacon— though, as we've shown, that connection was previously established before Newbold began his work.
1: Newbold died in 1926 at the age of 60, before he could complete his full research. However, his notes were compiled and published posthumously in 1928 under the somewhat bold title, The Cipher of Roger Bacon.
0: In the publication, Newbold proposed a dense and very complex methodology for cracking the cipher. Quote,
1: A place of beginning must be found, and then the minute shorthand characters must be identified and transliterated into ordinary letters. It is of prime importance to get them in their proper order, for the second step is to double every one but the first and the last, and then to divide them into pairs. The next stage is to commute or change every letter which in its pair stands next to any one of the letters in the Latin word commuta or to cue. Then, each pair has to be translated into its alphabetic value, which is next translated into its phonetic value. By this decipherment, we now have a meaningless string of Latin letters belonging to the 11-letter alphabet. These letters must be rearranged to form a Latin text.
0: Naturally, most people couldn't follow Newbold's logic, or how he came to this method of deciphering the text. However, Newbold had been a renowned teacher and philosopher, and his late-in-life passion for codes and ciphers was known throughout the academic community. Thus, when his thesis on the Voynich manuscript was first published, most people assumed he knew exactly what he was talking about.
1: The crux of Newbold's theory was that the writing in the Voynich manuscript was more akin to shorthand than in actual language and that the letters in the manuscript were actually words themselves, making a series of smaller characters that could only be seen with a magnifying glass. This theory, that each letter contains a word, is similar to later speculations that the manuscript may be based on Chinese
0: or a language comparable to it. Newbold also claimed to have decoded large swaths of the text. These translations revealed a number of scientific writings that would have made Roger Bacon the most advanced scientific mind of his generation.
1: Newbold's key takeaway was that Bacon had somehow managed to craft astrological charts centuries before the existence of any telescopes powerful enough to confirm his findings.
0: Newbold's take on the Voynich manuscript made a splash, for a time. Given that his was the first major analysis to be published, a number of people subscribed to his conclusions.
1: Wilfred Voynich did not live long enough to see the first major pushback against Newbold's theories. He died in 1930 at the age of 64.
0: But the following year, Newbold's theory came under suspicion when some skeptical linguists looked closer at his claims.
1: In 1931, John Matthews Manley, an English and philology professor, published Roger Bacon and the Voynich Manuscript in an issue of Speculum, a historical and scientific journal devoted to the study of the Middle Ages.
0: In short, Manley stated that the Newbold claims are entirely baseless and should be definitely and absolutely rejected.
1: Manley proceeded to pick apart Newbold's theories piece by piece and emphasized that his cipher is wholly unreliable, unverifiable, and impractical. Newbold's obsession with cracking the manuscript likely caused him to make jumps in logic necessary to complete his own translation.
0: Again, it's worth noting that Newbold is likely not the first person to suggest the Voynich manuscript's connection to Roger Bacon. However, Newbold is credited with publicizing and popularizing that link in his initial book.
1: It seems very likely that Wilfred Voynich himself suggested the theory of Roger Bacon's authorship to Newbold. And Newbold, in turn, was affected by that preconceived notion.
0: Manley's publication had the desired effect. Newbold's hypothesis was seen as unreliable to the scientific community— And so linguists went back to the drawing board.
1: None of them would be successful in their renewed efforts to crack the code. Even today, all we have are theories as to the Voynich Manuscript's real purpose. It could be a medical document or a star chart or a log of some unknown group's scientific endeavors. Some even think it could be a prophecy to a future cataclysm.
0: But without any consensus on how to translate the volume, the Voynich manuscript secrets remain a mystery. And perhaps that is by design, as recent theories have speculated that the Voynich manuscript may be intentionally indecipherable because it's a hoax.
1: Next, We'll cover the more recent history of the Voynich Manuscript and the main theories as to its authorship. Now, back to the story.
0: When 64-year-old Wilfred Voynich died in 1930, it's entirely possible that he did so under the assumption that the coded manuscript that bore his name had been cracked and that the mystery had been solved. But just a year after Voynich passed away, William Newbold's cipher for the Voynich manuscript was heavily critiqued by philologist John Matthews Manley. The academic community at large came to accept that they were no closer to translating the manuscript than they'd been in 1915, when the document was first unveiled to the public.
1: After Wilfred Voynich's death, the manuscript changed hands a number of times over the course of several decades. Many of these owners would try to crack the cipher or employ others to that end.
0: All would fail.
1: First, the manuscript went to his wife, Ethel Lillian Voynich. In 1931, after Manley refuted Newbold's thesis, Ethel took up her husband's mantle. She enlisted
0: prominent linguists and code crackers to examine the manuscript. Among these notable figures were Professor Henri Ivernat and his assistant, Friar Theodore Peterson. They were responsible for creating the first complete copies of the manuscript pages. These photocopies made it easier for multiple people to investigate the manuscript at once. But they didn't make much headway in deciphering it.
1: At some point in 1944, cryptographer William Friedman also became publicly involved in the growing effort to unlock the secrets of the Voynich Manuscript.
0: William Friedman was a U.S. government intelligence worker and code cracker. He'd previously made a name for himself by cracking Japanese code machines prior to America's entrance into World War II.
1: Friedman is also credited with helping John Matthews Manley write his critique of Newbold's proposed translation of the manuscript. In 1944, Friedman led his own team, known today as the First Study Group, in trying to decipher the text.
0: The First Study Group's key contribution to Voynich research was making the manuscript machine-readable. Specifically, they transcribed every line onto an IBM punch card so that it could be fed to a machine.
1: As an aside, consider that in the 1940s, a computer could compute math problems or decode encrypted messages, and that's about it.
0: It's through the efforts of the first study group that we have the statistical data about the number of characters in the Voynich manuscript, how often they repeat, and how they are structured.
1: And yet, we don't have much else from their efforts. Although surviving records of their meeting minutes confirm that they met throughout the summer of 1945, there is very little data as to what the group actually determined.
0: It's likely that they didn't make significant enough discoveries for Friedman to publish their results. We do know that a second study group was assembled nearly 20 years later, in 1962, and met regularly until at least 1963. Again, beyond the knowledge that this group existed, there is very little data on their findings.
1: Friedman witnessed firsthand how Newbold's book had cemented Roger Bacon's connection to the Voynich manuscript, even after the cipher itself was disproven. He likely knew that if he published a piece on the Voynich manuscript that didn't offer exact, extensive data, he would be no different from Newbold. He'd be propagating theories that would take hold in the public consciousness and dilute the real truth.
0: Ethel Lillian Voynich had hoped to carry on her husband's mission to decipher the Voynich manuscript. But she, too, died with it still untranslated in 1960. Ownership passed to Anne Nill, she worked in Wilfred's bookshop for years and was a close friend and companion to Ethel after Wilfred's death.
1: It's likely, though not confirmed, that Anne also took over whatever remained of the Voynage's rare bookstores and collections. In the interest of keeping the businesses afloat and herself out of poverty, she began working for Hans Peter Kraus. He was a 53-year-old Austrian-born book dealer who had found significant success in the acquisition and sale of rare documents.
0: Krauss bought most of the Voynich's stock of rare books. This included the Voynich manuscript, purchased for around $24,000. According to one source, once Krauss secured a wealthy buyer for the manuscript, he intended to split the profits with Anne. Unfortunately, Anne died in 1961, shortly after she sold the manuscript to Krauss. Krauss continued to
1: try and sell the manuscript for a sum of $160,000. That's the equivalent of over $1.3 million today.
0: Unfortunately, there's not much data available on how Krauss went about trying to sell the Voynich manuscript or who specifically he tried to sell it to. He didn't seem to publicly offer the manuscript, or, if he did, no advertisement or record exists. The
1: antique book world of that time was very much built on relationships and person-to-person conversations. While we can assume that Krauss spoke to many people about selling the manuscript, we can't know more than that, as no
0: records of any such dealings exist. But he couldn't find a single buyer. The mystery of the Voynich manuscript had been a case of public interest for over 50 years. But every widely publicized attempt at deciphering the code had been either fully disproven or met with enough skepticism to render the mystery still unsolved. Any prospective buyer likely knew that owning the manuscript came with a responsibility to continue the efforts to translate it.
1: Through most of the 1960s, Krauss peddled to his network of fellow antiquarians, while also taking it upon himself to become better versed in the manuscript's history.
0: He traveled to the Vatican in 1962 and explored their library for clues about the manuscript, likely in the hope that he could find some shred of evidence that would connect the manuscript to Roger Bacon just confirming the authorship would prove invaluable to Krauss, as doing so would allow him to increase the asking price.
1: But he found no such confirmation. And in 1969, after nearly eight years of unsuccessfully trying to make a sale, Hans Peter Krauss gave it as a donation to the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale University. It's still there today.
0: Interest in the manuscript has generally waned in the 50 years since it came to reside at Yale, though there are still those who carry on the efforts to decode it.
1: In 1972, Prescott Courier, a Navy captain who'd previously worked with Friedman during the days of the first and second study group, published a paper claiming the reason no one had been able to decode the Voynich manuscript was because it wasn't written in code— It was in a language that had not previously been discovered.
0: Four years later, in 1976, national security agent James R. Child argued that the manuscript had been written by two different people working in a, quote, hitherto unknown North Germanic dialect. A couple
1: of years after that, in 1978, Writer and cryptographer Mary D. Imperio compiled a comprehensive history of everything that had been learned about the Voynich Manuscript since its modern discovery in 1912.
0: There are dozens more examples of the ongoing efforts to decode and expand knowledge of the Voynich Manuscript. In fact, there are far too many for us to list them all in one episode.
1: And yet none of these efforts would provide a definitive answer to the riddle. And this begs the question, what if the reason this mystery seems unsolvable is because there really is nothing to solve? Could the manuscript just be a hoax, an intentionally unreadable text made for some unknown reason hundreds of years ago? Have all of these efforts to decode the manuscript possibly been... For nothing?
0: In our next episode, we'll cover more of the modern efforts to crack the code of the Voynich mystery and consider some theories about its authorship.
1: First, we'll look at one possible history of the Voynich manuscript, that it was owned by Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II at some point in the 17th century. We'll try to pick up the manuscript's trail from wherever it was created to the Villa Mondragone, where Wilfred Voynich founded in 1912.
0: Second, we'll consider the most mainstream authorship theory, that Roger Bacon was the original creator of the Voynich Manuscript.
1: Finally, we'll explore the theory that has become more and more prominent in recent years. The Voynich Manuscript is a hoax, either created by unknown schemers 500 years ago or, perhaps, by Wilfred Voynich himself.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with Part 2 of the Voynich Manuscript.
1: You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify.
0: Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unexplained Mysteries, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To
1: stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar.
0: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer.
1: Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Joel Stein, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.